I love me some music, question mark, exclamation mark, repeat. Welcome to Is This Music? A podcast brought to you by Minnesota-based 113 Composers Collective. My name is Justin Spenner, and I'll be your host as we talk to the creators and performers that make up the little niche we call experimental music. This podcast is about embracing complexity, tracing the art that made us, access to beauty, countless art life, life art rabbit holes, and new music icon impressions. Before I get going too deep, I want to uh, get a very important acknowledgement out of the way. This activity is made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Now, we've put out two uh, pilot episodes, so thank you to anyone who listened to those. Be sure to check them out if you haven't while you wait for new content. But, but this is the official first episode, so I'm especially excited that we're all here together on different timelines. How's the future doing, by the way? Are we uh, still messing things up? Could you use some music? My guest this episode is Nina Dante, an artist that, I'm convinced, has no idea what inhibition means anymore. The sounds she produces range from delicate, fragile, and breezy, to piercing, warm, and tangible, to full-out witch. The sounds she makes come from the earth, a practice that perfectly fits her pandemic home in the forests of Mount Hood. What strikes me about Nina is their self-definition as a storyteller, placed above even being a musician. It got me thinking that maybe that's the through line to living with complexity, enjoying a good story. Well, Bruce Springsteen agrees with us anyway, so think whatever the hell you want. We're in good company. Check out Nina's work at the upcoming New Music Festival put on by 113 Composers Collective here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Shows, both virtual and live, will take place from July 8th to July 10th, and our recording of Bethany Young's Her Disappearance airs on July 8th, and it's virtual, so no geographic excuses to miss that one. Check out program descriptions and get your tickets at www.113collective.com and throw them a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram to keep up with all they have to offer. Now, settle in, let Nina's gentle musings comfort you, then get ready for eldritch witch sounds that radiate from the gut. Here's my conversation with Nina Dante. Many waves, and you wave down. You wave down deep to the bottom of the river, down to where the stones are, down to where the stones shine, inky black and red and green and brown. So, I have uh, Nita Dante here, and we are going to figure out why we're both here uh, <laughs> in a very long-winded way. So, <laughs> Nina, we have, um, we've worked together... Well, I, th- I think technically twice, but I think you, you've been on the same concert than the same program as me another time. So we'll, we'll chalk it up to three times, you know. Oh, absolutely. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. On your podcast. It's nice to interact with you on this level as well as on a performance level. Yes, exactly. And yeah, this is this is exciting because it's um, I think this somehow this is the um, the the most distance we've been collaborating, you know, um, but this is also, this is the most contact that we've had <laughs> at the same yes, time. Yes, it's true. 
Yes, because the the one time that we did perform live, which was a beautiful piece on the last 113 Composers Festival in mm -hmm. the Twin Cities. Uh, Lock and Mann, um, right? The Lock and Mann. very delicious and dense um but you and i were just one of many singers yes and so we didn't get a chance to really mind meld or exchange thoughts um like i think we have for the recent piece that we've worked on and as we will today yeah yeah and that's uh yeah when you i mean how many singers was that was that uh was that 16 is that 16 that sounds of us? like the right number yes oh geez remember we took up an entire classroom at the university yes we did we did. And I, re I remember we were in there and screeching and everything like yeah. that. And there was like a college acapella group, pop, papapella, oh. whatever, group down the hall. And somebody came into the wrong classroom. And this oh, kid, no. bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, probably ready to sing Gaga or something, just came into, you know, whatever we were doing. And it was like a cartoon. He like backed out. Like, yeah. I imagine that I would have done the same thing if I had yeah, walked probably. into the acapella rehearsal. Like, I know this is not where I'm supposed to be. Right? But... Like, you didn't, did you not get your music? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm not prepared. <laughs> That's what we're doing. Um, you do have a, a relationship with 113, and I, I just like kind of um, tracing that, that connection and everything. So how did you first get involved with 113 Composers Collective? Well, the first time I heard about 113 was, oh my gosh, must have been in 2014 or something like that. Um, they brought out two of my colleagues, Dahlia Chin and Emily Beisel, to perform music by the visionary Mexican composer Julio Estrada, um, his gorgeous You Know piece. And um, after that, I, I was so happy to have the opportunity to work with them. I think it was a year later or two years later. And they brought out Fonema Consort, which is my ensemble. Uh, to play music by members of the collective and also a gorgeous work by James Dillon and a new piece by my good friend and the brilliant composer Bethany Young. Um, and after that, they asked me to come out to play on their, I think it was the inaugural festival or one of the, was it the inaugural? I think so. And I, yeah, yeah. I think I remember, I remember that I was in the audience in that one, I think. Oh, that so. was such a such a wonderful experience. I sang a solo show, and the Lahanman happened, and um, some small ensemble pieces. And uh, I went to California with them on a short tour of California, which was an adventure. And um, yes, now we have our postponed festival that That's we're working right. on now. A year later, which is just such a joy to bring to life. The pandemic disrupted so many things, and and it feels so good to to say we're we're going to continue on. We're going to make this music in the circumstances we have. There's a power and a beauty in doing that. So, I'm very glad that we're making this festival happen online. <laughs> 
Yes, yes, I agree. It's um, it's such an interesting thing too because it's usually one weekend. The festival's only one weekend. Yes, you know, and that's a, you know, that's a lot to take in in one weekend. A lot of complexity yes. to just sit with um, for <laughs> seventy two hours. And it's since they're doing it throughout the summer, really, I mean, it kind of things are kind of going to be trickling through in different ways virtually. And then there will be a couple in-person stuff, you know, in the cities. And um, that's just that's I keep on thinking about how uh, people will be able to kind of latch on and let things settle, you know, and rewatch. Yes. You know, and that's our piece that we're doing together, Her Disappearance by Bethany Young. Um, I think it's going to be one of those experiences. Yeah, I agree. And you know, the something that I think is beautiful about the online format at this time for festivals is that it sort of makes the entire experience of the festival or concert or whatever feel more like an installation that's going on over a long period of time. You can kind of pop in when you want to experience a bit of it, a corner of the room and then leave and come back again when you're ready, when you're thirsty for more. So I do think that this format has um, advantages of its own and beauties of its own that are good for all of us. And I'm sure you've experienced too. It's it's interesting you said, um, you know, usually this festival takes place over one weekend. And for us performers, that means that we come in, we have a week of super intense rehearsals, we've prepared, we perform, it's this like juicy, wonderful, vibrant experience, yep. and then it's over. But for all of us making this festival happen in many other events over the past year, it's been really drawn out processes. Yes. That it's like months and months of preparation and then a long, um, sort of a long period of recording and assembling videos and things like that. So it's interesting that even the lead up to things has, has changed. That experience has been very different. Yeah. Yeah. Very different. That The editing process, the, uh, yeah. you know, I think for, you know, for a lot of musicians, or I'm just kind of maybe speaking for myself here, but but um, wouldn't be surprised if for a lot of musicians, you know, the editor is kind of a new art realm, you know. Yes. Yeah. It's like, oh, you can you can smudge up this, <laughs> you know, this palette a little bit too, you know, and that's that's been that's been pretty thrilling for for me to see. Um, I get it now. Um, so. So yeah, so let's let's talk about you. <laughs> let's talk Ooh. about you a little bit, right? Um, <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, well, let's let's start with now. Like, what's what are some things? What's some music that you've been? Do you listen to music besides what you're preparing and di- diving into? Yes, yes, all the time. I listen to music all the time. Um, and actually, something I've been listening to a lot right now is an album that was the meeting of the brilliant minds of the salsa king Gianni Pacheco and also Celia Cruz. And I believe the album is called Celia and Gianni. And it is the most wonderful album of all time. <laughs>
things are incredible. They get your blood up. They make you think. They, um, it's just beautiful, incredible music. So I've been listening to that a lot. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine got me on a deep dive into the Beatles discography. So I've been listening to everything recorded by the Beatles, which has been really so much fun. Um, I went through a very strange and mysterious month-long obsession with Bruce Springsteen. amazing storyteller yeah i i tend to gravitate toward music that is sort of storytelling based like and that doesn't necessarily mean that it you know the store that the poetry is storytelling but just music that i feel is telling me a strong story i love that so much and and in my own singing and my own repertoire i tend to gravitate toward music that does that as well i want to hear stories that's humans love being told stories. yeah humans love being told yeah Exactly. That's what this is all about. That's what it was from the beginning. So yes. We keep yes, tapping well, into that. Yeah, and I, and I think there's there's a uh, there's the more stories that you hear, then the more capacity you have to you know hear more difficult and complex stories. Yeah, you know, you know it's so interesting on sort of on that subject and. Um, complexity as a tool to storytelling and things like that. Um, I've spent a, um, the past year approximately in the Pacific Northwest at my parents' home. And we live in the forest. It's a really beautiful area. It's near Mount Hood. And um, when I first got here, I believe I must have been doing an online yoga class or something like that. And um, the teacher said, there are no straight lines in nature. And of course, this is something we all know. We all know this at a very elemental level, but I heard her say that and I just gasped. And that afternoon I went out for a walk and I was just walking through the forest and and really it was hitting me over and over again. There are no straight lines here. Everything has a bend in it. Everything is curving. Everything is sinuous. Everything is flowing. There is no grid on top of this world except the grid that humans put there right which i think you know when you're talking about grid in in terms of music and artistic creation in music i i think the grid is a time grid so time signature the beat the rhythm in something and you know of course we see in human construction we see grids everywhere lines are everywhere and I do think that, you know, that's part of our evolution. It's part of our way to feel like we have a little bit of control in a world that is totally uncontrollable and chaotic in the most beautiful way. And of course, so are we. Our spirits have no straight lines. We're, we're all curves. We're all flow. And, um, you know, the grid in music, I, I believe, has yielded such incredible fruits. I mean, every, every, everything we love 
has come from that. And I know the grid has been around since the first drum was hit by the first human hand. Um, and uh, But something that I believe that complexity in music can serve is allowing us at this point in our development, this point in our evolution to, to sort of like lift up that grid, lift up that 4-4 four, four time, that mm -hmm. steady rhythm, and slip back into the that sinuous kind of flow of this beautiful natural chaos of the world and sing back in that space again, um, which I think offers an opportunity to dig back into more like subconscious, very ancient uh, human animal ways, like a, a way of being, a way of making music that uh, approaches closer to like what it is to subconsciously be a creature in this world, like mm. where we still fit in, where we still flow with the world. And that's not to say that I think music that isn't, you know, experimental or like complex <laughs> new music can't accomplish the same thing. But I do think that um, experimental music and complexity in music can help us reach this state of being. Because of course, with musical complexity, you have the grid, you have time as a factor, like the lifting up of rigid time mm -hmm. as a, a defining factor of musical complexity. But you also have um, techniques, new techniques, or what we call new techniques, but yeah, but really, we've been making them. But really, yeah, we've been making these sounds for as long as we've been human. And uh, other creatures have been mm -hmm. making these sounds before we, we were. Um, so, yeah, there's also this um, sort of sinuosity of technique. Like, I know, and I'm sure you know, in, in you know, one of my favorite pieces, I'm fluttering between airy sounds, windy sounds, making these sounds with my voice, going between flutter tongue, sounding like a cat bird song with a whistle, uh, gurgling sounds like water, like, you know, this music asks you to flow between all these different sounds, all these different techniques, which for me also feels like, you know, slipping out of my skin a little bit, my my modern human skin and and flowing back more more spirit like more subconsciously back into our landscape. So um, yeah, these are just a few of my thoughts about how complexity can help us with storytelling and help us tell slightly more subconscious stories that tie us back into the world rather than necessarily human reflecting back on mm -hmm. human. Well, and you know, to, to, to your point, I mean, just the music you mentioned that you've been listening to recently, I mean, is, is you know, it's kind of that point that complexity doesn't mean um, weird, yeah. you know, complexity doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean something that's, that's uh, completely new and foreign to your ears and everything. I mean, you, you've been spending time exploring the complexity of one, four, five, one, you know, with you know Bruce Springsteen and the Beatles, right? Yeah, like, there are just endless places to go. Yeah, uh, even within uh, one, four, five, one. Yeah. Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. 
I do think, you know, these things are the same thing. Bruce, Bruce Springsteen is the same thing as Julio Estrada, is the same thing as Bethany Young. All of these musics are flowing out of this very elemental place of the human spirit. Mm-hmm. And they're all flowing back into the same place, back into the world. I mean, you know, these impulses, they come from the same place. Uh, just using different means to tell stories and often to tell the same stories. Yeah. We've been telling the same stories over and over yeah. So, yeah, since, it, since human storytelling started. So, um, yeah, it yeah. all comes from the same place. It does. It does. There's, there's always somebody that hasn't li- even ha- hasn't heard it or hasn't listened to it, you know. Yeah. So it yeah. bears repeating, you know, yeah. and every time that, that you repeat it, you have to you have to find a little bit different way to explain it, different different way to illustrate it. Um, I, lo- I love the idea that, that, that we have already been in this place in our history, you know, yeah. in our existence. And, and yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of what, what you just said, just kind of, you know, I think it's going to be a pr- perspective shift for me. Well, I know, I know living, living out here um, in such close proximity to the forest mm-hmm has really changed my perspective on almost everything. But definitely on what my role as an artist is, it's sort of helped me crystallize and understand what that is. Hmm. Um, And it is very simply to tell stories and to try to, as sinuously as possible, flow with the world and try to gather stories from the world tell my stories to the world and see where things meet in the middle. And I know that sounds really nebulous, but um, it is nebulous. <laughs> it is. It I, is, I, but, but it's as tangible artist, in a way. We want to be in flow with the yeah. world and be telling the necessary stories that come from the world and from the people around us. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it, it's tangible. Yeah, You're it's right. tangible. It's, 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 it's something you can measure, you know, you can, you can, uh, witness that change in somebody that's experiencing that, you know, um, and everything, which is, which is magical. I mean, right. It's addicting. (laughs) It is. It absolutely is. You know, it's interesting too, because I know there's a lot of, with experimental music, there are several blocks, I think, for, for people when you're first uh, listening to it or experiencing it or whatever. And there's like this idea that you can't possibly understand it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's not all music is good. That This is true. Not, not every piece you're going to hear is good. Not everything you're going to experience is good. But I think um, music that can sort of transcend its either, uh, what's the word? Aca- academability, <laughs> academicness, yeah. music, music that can transcend what we see as academicness, or uh, can um, reach out, sort of, and speak to us on a very personal level. That and that never requires any sort of knowledge or special understanding. I think it merely requires having a, a human spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's at the moment reaching out to receive information that's necessary mm-hmm. to the individual um yeah, i think that the academia is is a huge part about a huge part of experimental music and often becomes the identity of it i think even with people in the yeah. culture yeah. um 
because it's so scientific. It's this, it, it really, to me, experimental music, you know, really gets into the science of music and science is art and art is science. Right. You know, yeah. I, I always think, and the problem is, is that it's, uh, what, what tends to happen sometimes is that we get the product straight from the lab, hmm. you know? Yeah. And so you have, it's, it's so detailed, so dense and absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, uh, the, when it becomes consumable, right. When it becomes yeah. consumable is when the artist takes that. And this is something that I, I explained to, um, to, to, to people that are unfamiliar with, with new music is that it's all about the aesthetic, mm-hmm. you know, it's not about the perfection. No, it can't be that. That isn't a goal. That mm-hmm. that's an illness. Yeah, <laughs> you know something I think about a lot is um, for people who aren't familiar with like what a you know classic score of a contemporary sort of complex new music looks like. I mean, it's very challenging. There. Are Time signatures changing constantly, tempi changing constantly, uh, all these different notations telling you to do different sort of techniques. And I think with this sort of music, to me, freeing yourself from 4-4, for instance, we're just going to arbitrarily choose a time signature. It's all about like allowing for a different understanding of movement through a line or um, sort of the physicality of a line it's about getting outside of a rigid structure what's difficult right now is that like the difficult pill to swallow is that to get out of that composers have been writing these extremely complex in insanely difficult scores in order to uh, notate a line that moves in the spontaneous way that a bird song does mm-hmm. or that stones falling out of your hand onto another rock sound. They want to get that spontaneousness written into the score in order to be reproduced. The danger I think here is that you can take that too seriously as a performer. Mm-hmm. For me, I think the point is as a performer also to liberate yourself from the idea of hard angles and straight lines and things like that. So as a performer, you know, I hope there are no composers out there who are getting really mad at me right now. I take the scores very seriously, but when it comes time to perform, I'm like, this is the moment to free myself, mm-hmm. even from the structure of the the piece it's, itself. Um, and the music arrives. It does. And it's not wrong. <laughs> right. But but there is there is this me as a human body reflecting back the effort to sort of uncage the performer from straight lines, um, I'm reflecting that back, and I'm like, I'm going to step out, even of even of the um, anxiety over the structure that you've created for me mm-hmm. to make me feel like I don't have structure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel that's, like that was said very com- in a very complicated way, but that's what um, we're here for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I also want to get to fly out of the constraints of the score at the end of the day yes. that's my job to and do that and tell a story that that's that's the through line between all music people people wanted that uh pe- people wanted that at the first drum yeah i i, I did want to make sure I, I asked about your process because you know um 
it's just I mean, you're 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 so engaging to 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 watch on on you know perform and and hear and I mean it really is just like a kind of all around experience because as soon for for me when I've seen you perform like it's like as soon as I'm listening then I want to watch as soon as I'm watching I want to listen it's just there's just like these layers you know so let's let's try to trace where that comes from yeah yeah no I I know what you mean thank you for those kind words um they mean a lot to me because for me being a musician isn't about really music at all Mm. like I say I'm obsessed with with storytelling this is what I feel that I'm here to do um that's the job of artists it, from my point of view everyone sees these things differently of course and they should um but I I like to think of myself primarily as an artist and a storyteller before I think of myself as a musician um and I sometimes have the feeling that um I could have sort of channeled that natural impulse in myself into many different things and um I just happened to uh have a voice that had certain capabilities and it made sense to channel it into that and I get a lot of joy from singing and and making music and and um the sensuality of that you know I'm sure you have experienced this too but making music is so delicious uh not just because of the sounds you make but also because of your body moving through space and you end up dancing a lot there's a lot of movement there's a lot of like gorgeous reaching out to other people it's just a very sensual um, it's a very central job to have and, and very delicious. It does. So, it kind of radiates from the core, you know, like it really... It does. It, yeah, yeah. It starts in the guts mm-hmm. and it, it um, radiates out from there. That's a really good word for that. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so so I, I feel that the impulse to create and tell stories was just present in me from the time I was born. It's just who I am. And uh, I was lucky to get to be a musician in this life. I feel really grateful. So where did the musician part come from? Well, we, I mean, I was singing from the time I was really small. Just, it was just something that I did. I mean, a lot of kids sing, but um, apparently I could sing in tune. And and (laughs) my mom was like, that's interesting. That's interesting. Let's encourage. (laughs) Yeah, that's. That's encouraging. And my parents played music all the time when we were small. So we were always hearing music and singing and um, different things. They played a lot of classical music, actually. There was one album that always, it it will never leave my soul. (laughs) And it was an album of Kathleen Battle and Itzhak Perlman. And they were playing um, pieces by Bach. Uh, from his cantatas with violin obligato. the most beautiful 
beautiful album. Oh my goodness. We listened to Enya. That was great. Sail Away um, was a favorite. Uh, we listened to tons of bachata too, because on my mother's side, I'm Dominican. So we listened to a lot of that at home, which was great. And my, my abuela taught us to dance to it. So that sort of energy is... Como lo bailan en tu casa restaurant allí en Nueva York, de amigo blanco. And, and rhythm too yeah oh yeah 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 wonderful delicious complicated rhythms uh that sound like the world they're so beautiful um yeah so all kinds of different things we actually we didn't listen to a lot of uh pop music or, or anything like that i don't know how that worked out um but later in my Early teens, my dad started introducing me to the there, there's there's something to be said for like the the specific moments of music you know and, and just this is kind of just my mind went when you said that you didn't really grow up you know listening to pop music um yeah. You know, and that's such an umbrella term, you know. And yeah, I know. It encompasses so much. I almost feel embarrassed to use it. But just to give you context, we also didn't grow up with a television. So we were sort of, we didn't have a lot of uh, influences coming in from pop culture right. as kids, which I always think is interesting. I, and I, I appreciate it now because um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit odd you might say, but in a way that I, I think has allowed me to feel individuated. Um, which, of course, that's just one path of so many to feel individuated in this world. But I, I'm grateful for it on a personal level from that way. I'm like, okay, I appreciate it not, not necessarily having tons of influences pouring in on me from all sides. I kind of got right. to develop a little more remote from that. Well, you you would have been odd anyways, right? It just would have been think so. like Pokemon odd. I don't know, like it's <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I'm odd too, and and I had yeah. probably too much pop culture. <laughs> yeah, so, I know, I know. You know. We are who we are. Exactly, sure. <laughs> exactly. But it, but the intentionality of it is something is is something is something marvelous. You know where the radio is fantastic, right? 
We'll just yeah. put that blanket statement out there. The radio is fantastic. It also um, it also encourages passive listening. Mm. And th- this pandemic, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and I've been so much happier uh, thinking about my playlist. Yeah. Like, you know, if, if I'm cooking versus working versus hanging out, whatever... What do I want to listen to? What do I want to explore? You know, so it's, and it sounds like your early life was just that. Like, let's. Yeah, a lot of like self direction. Yeah. Which is nice. And I, I also do think that's been an, it's interesting you had mentioned that in relation to the pandemic, because I do feel that the pandemic has been a time that people have had to be so self-directed. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going out to concerts, so you have to decide how how do I how do I want to um like exorcise that part of yeah. me? How do I want to how how do I want to direct my life and my experiences? There's been so much self-direction, and I know we're all going to be so happy when we can find more of a a balance as things start opening up between this kind of like self-direction we've all been really uh, forced into mm-hmm. and direction from the world being like reaching out to us and saying don't you want to come here don't you want to see this don't you uh, want to experience that we need that it's so it's so good for us and and wonderful but I do think it's been an interesting time to kind of recommit to the self-direction of one's own studies and interests and yes. um, amateurisms and and things like that it's yeah. also so, a healthy balance to to get into amateurisms I like that I like that. Oh, amateur pursuits are the best. Oh, they're the best. They're the best. They're, yeah, you don't oh. get graded. That's nice. I know. <laughs> you don't have to be professional. You just get to enjoy and love a thing and yeah. dig into it a bit. So, okay. So you so you grew up with basically like the best of multiple genres. <laughs> right? <laughs> so your parents, As perceived parents had, by my parents. You have, your yeah. parents had great musical taste. Yeah. Great musical taste, which is which is very important, actually. Um, so, what what happens then? Well, um, I as I got older, I I realized that I wanted to be an opera singer because, again, storytelling. Mm-hmm. So specifically, opera. Yeah, I, I I really wanted to be an opera singer because I, I loved that marriage of theater, storytelling, mm-hmm. and music. It meant a lot to me. I was like, oh, this feels like home. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a pretty dramatic person, so I was <laughs> like, I can see fitting into to that aesthetic really well. Um, and I I ended up going to college for to study voice and opera at Northwestern University. And uh, while I was there, I I came to realize that I that the that was a bit too much of a grid if we're talking about kind of yeah. straight lines and and right angles and things like that. It was a bit too much of a grid for my personal spirit. Like it just it wasn't the right fit for me. And um, I got into singing some new works by composers at the university and and uh, really relished and appreciated the the complexity slash freedom of the music um and just felt that this was maybe a a path that would get me closer to to what i was searching for um which was a sort of 
wider encompassing storytelling um, in which I could feel a little freer as a, as a person and rely on myself a little bit more. Do you remember um, any of those kind of gateway pieces during those? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, there were some really beautiful ones. There was, <laughs> I remember the first time I realized that I would need a tuning fork to get through life if I wanted to sing new music. And it was one of the first first new music pieces I did. And it was called, oh, what was it called? Confiteor, I think. Or was it Tristesse? Uh, by Daniel DeHaan. And it was for four voices, I believe. And I was in the middle of the rehearsal and I was like, how am I supposed to find my pitch? And my friend Robert Reinhardt handed me a tuning fork and he was like, good luck. There you go. <laughs> so and that that was a beautiful piece and uh but i remember the one that like sealed the deal for me and drove me wild and it was this beautiful piece by the costa rican composer pablo chin who was at northwestern at the time and it was uh called solo es real la niebla was for voice flute and saxophone and I think that was the first time I played with now uh, my very very dear friend and, and clo close collaborator and co-creator Dahlia Chin she's a wonderful flutist piece it's so foggy and so like or very organic sounding and uh sets a beautiful text by Otavio Paz um yeah and after that I was like oh I think I'm moving in the right direction now that's it's a, we, we we have very similar trajectories uh oh. which is actually very makes me feel good about where I'm at that's <laughs> how lovely yeah, yeah I, I think I think it's a I think it's a story many of us have who end up in more experimental arts. There's mm -hmm. just something, there's always something that you're like, I'm not quite satisfied. I'm not quite able to scratch this itch yeah. in my soul, you know, and I just need to go a little further and look around the next corner. Yeah. Well, and it's, yeah. it's, um, it's, it's somebody that, you know, I still, you know, very much, do a lot of opera work and everything like that and you know and and uh i often and i will eventually full-heartedly listen to this but you know i often wonder like maybe maybe i need to you know shift that trajectory more into experimental mm -hmm. music because it's it's increasingly that's where i'm feeling the most connected and and i think the 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 thing about it um is that it's not about the product it's not look what I can do. It's it's 
like, this is what I've been working on. It's always a work in progress. You're always looking at like, what's the next thing? Nobody's expecting perfection, like we said before. Uh, the, yeah. you, know, you you do Mozart and, and it's, uh, you know, if your dotted eighths are lagging, you could buy career depending who's in the audience. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. And I, I think that's one of the, the difficulties about, um, and, and for many people, it's what, what they relish and love and what's challenging and stimulating to them about um, being an interpreter of older music, classical mm-hmm. music, more uh, tr- what we think of as traditional music is that like pursuit of, of that perfection. And then once you reach that, being able to tell a story mm-hmm. in the most crystalline possible way. But not all of us are storytellers in that way. I, I know for, for myself, I, I feel best when I can let more of myself through um, without having to worry about compromising a, an, a certain idea of what perfection is. Um, and it, for me, the freer I feel, the, the more impactful I feel my creations become. Mm. So, yeah, I think really with these paths in music, it's all about what makes you feel the most free and what makes you feel that you're able to transmit a story or an idea or a feeling uh, with the most freedom and impact. And for some of us, that's that's taking an experimental path. And for some of us, that's taking a traditional path. And they're all necessary paths. So... Yeah, it's interesting to be part of this like huge web of what is making music, what is art yeah. making, what is storytelling. This you know? music, see, yeah. it's in the title. Uh, <laughs> what about the sounds? You know, it's a very captivating part about this about this art form is the um, unconventional. Uh, maybe that's a better word instead of extended technique, you know, <laughs> and everything. But unconventional uses of the voice. You know, and I know for me, it's it's like no matter what weird sounds I make, like I'm insanely captivated by the weird sound the person next to me is making, you know, mm. um, and yeah. So you mentioned earlier, you know, the fluttering and the and the the bird calls and everything like that, and um, you know, but uh, where where did you? Do you know when you discovered that that was a capability for you? Was that around the same time in in undergrad or? Well, it's so interesting to look back at that time now from where I am now, where I'm so steeped in making alternative sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, Because really, I had no idea. I had no idea that people were making these sounds or that I I would be interested in making these sounds. I really was totally in the dark of of my own, like what was about to burst in on me. And it was really through my interactions with uh, composers and the sort of sounds that they were imagining and hearing out in the world and asking me to participate in um, that I realized there was this whole other palette of sounds that are extremely evocative sounds that are good storytelling sounds uh, that those sounds were available to me and that I could use them in my practice in my own uh, creative practice and in interpreting the works of others to uh, bring more landscapes to life more stories to life Um, and uh, in the past like four years or so I've been doing my own 
much more of my own composing and my own storytelling creations in which I feel that these sounds are becoming even more integrated and inextricably intertwined uh, with with my um, vocal practice and my artistic practice. Like for me, it's even hard to imagine a voice as, as just uh, singing in a traditional manner. It, I, I can't even conceive of that concept anymore, but there was a time when that was all I knew about my, of my own voice and uh, of vocal music. So um, I am just infinitely grateful to the composers who started me out Mm. on that path and and especially to my friend Pablo Chin um, who created some very incredible works for me and introduced me to a lot of amazing music and um, of course I'm so grateful to all of my colleagues at Phonema Consort because with them we we really uh, those of us who founded the ensemble we really came of age together and we learned a lot about um, creation and, and music and sound making together and um yeah, I, I feel like my experiences with Fonema have, has been my greatest education, really, and uh, has opened my world in so many ways that now fuel my larger artistic practice, my personal artistic practice. So, Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not an island, right? I mean, it's, it's no. even if you're doing a, you know, a, a solo piece, I mean, obviously there's the composer there, but there's also... There, there's also the people that you trust. Does this work? You yeah. know, does this, that's, that's another, that's an, again, that's another, I think, commonality in this, in this art form um, is, is, yeah, I mean, yeah. So yeah, your ensemble, you know, Quince, you know, 113 is, is definitely this for me where, where people gravitate together, you know, and really, really develop a deep connection because, everything that you're saying i mean this this curvature you know yeah that's happening yeah and you have to navigate it when you don't have a grid it's harder to navigate and trust yeah well and it's so interesting too because when you have a group of people making all sorts of different um, unconventional sounds together you do have this opportunity to create uh sound environments together but it means you you have to always be in the this dialogue with each other about like where does my sound meet your sound where are we together in the mix like you know it's the same when you step out of the house like sometimes the bird is 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 playing the top line sometimes the river takes over for the bird like and all of these sounds somehow belong together they sound like part of the same entity and you know, one of them is just surfacing and kind of taking over for a moment before it dives back down, something comes back up. And um, I feel that way when navigating pieces in an ensemble setting. You're, you're always in this dialogue. Who's, who's, who's on top right now? Who's, whose voice is, is most present at the moment? And how do we all flow into each other mm-hmm. the way sounds do out in the world? So speaking of sounds out in the world, it might be a good segue to talk about her disappearance oh yes let's yes. so for the shameless plug for 113 uh <laughs> nina and i uh just got done recording filming and recording um her disappearance by bethany young a um beautiful and and simple really in in mm-hmm. <laughs> in a complex simplicity yes a piece that just uh, 
yeah, I, I think it has just just an incredible amount of, of possibilities for interpretation. Um, and I was really happy with 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 what we did. But uh, but yeah, so this this piece will be premiering at the um, one thirteen New Music Festival um, in July, and it will be it will be streaming. So check that out. One thirteen Composers Collective. Um, that was a long plug. <laughs> well, one thirteen one thirteen deserves it. The so. the links will be in the description. So look at the description, everybody. <laughs> um, it was kind of a cool a cool process doing this with you, you know, across the country. It really was. Yeah, yeah, it was fascinating. You know, I've I've done this. I've performed this piece once before, and that was with my duo partner Dalia Chin, the flutist, um, who happens to have an incredibly fascinating singing voice. I love when we sing together because I, I love her voice. It's super expressive. Um, but you know, it's one of those pieces. It's been done many, many, many times. There aren't that many pieces of new music that are just being constantly played. And this happened to be one of them. It really strikes a nerve with people. And I think a lot of that has to do with the text, which is a very short yet extremely dense text that can swim inside of many different storylines and tell an incredibly compelling story from many different perspectives. Maybe do, I'll just Do you have that accurately that. in your brain? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she demanded silence, so I gave her none. When she tried to speak, I robbed her of her voice. Once I ran out of breath, she soon disappeared. It's very heavy. Very heavy. It's very heavy. And the, the first time I performed this piece with Dahlia Chin, we decided to tap into a story that we were telling in another piece by uh, the wonderful Greek composer Stratis Minikakis. And this piece is called Cassandra Fragments. And it was... It was um, uh, monologue of Cassandra from Trojan women, Euripides, um, and just telling her story, telling the pain of her story of, of being thwarted by Apollo, of being thwarted by her family, and uh, in the end having to choose death as a means to do the greatest good she could in the world. Of course, literally had her voice taken away uh, by people getting the impression that she was insane and she was silenced and locked away and um, bartered off in marriage to a tyrant. Very heavy story. And, and so we decided to sort of continue telling that story um, in her disappearance. So we, we analyzed it personally through that viewpoint. But you and I, it's so interesting. We we analyzed it more through an environmental kind of conservationalist mm -hmm. point of view. When we're talking about she and her voice and, and things, we were thinking of the earth, of the world, who, um, of course, humans ignore her calls every day mm -hmm. um, and uh, destroy 
her forests and her oceans and um, yeah. And I, I did think, especially those last two lines, really just hit me hard from this point of view. Um, once I ran out of breath, she soon disappeared. So this idea that we're destroying our own home and uh, eventually will run out of the very air that we're breathing if we don't change our path. And there's another, there's another really amazing piece of Bethany's that she wrote for the wonderful flutist and my dear friend, Laura Cox, which is called Oxygen in Reality which is also sort of exploring this concept of the loss of oxygen and, uh, you know, human, human intervention, negative intervention on the planet that's causing that. So, um, yeah, I, it, huh. it really felt so appropriate to uh, analyze that text from a more environmental point of view. Yeah, and we, and we got to that point because you are living in this just lush, lush forest dreamland. <laughs> it's a literal rainforest here. It's um, incredible. Ugh. Breaks and my heart. That's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. I wish I, I could be there, but. I wish um, we could too. I wish we could have performed it here together. I don't know. Well, sometime, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometime. But, uh, you know, and, and then, yeah, and so I'm in Minneapolis, and uh, I've actually been, I've, there's been so many experiences. I've been trying to, you know, explore the city a little bit more, the parks and trails and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that just already already has been had been kind of a seed in my head of, of you know, there's these structures, you know, whether it's uh, the the overpass in the middle of you know, mm-hmm. you know, middle of the trail and everything. Or, um, but what I thought about specifically, I remember being up in Duluth, uh, uh, walking out to the light, uh, one the lighthouses. Um, and uh there was this i don't know it looked like a murder shack i mean it was just this <laughs> abandoned shack that obviously is not shack. being used you know i mean that's the only i mean what purpose could it have besides for a horror movie like yeah. you know and obviously not being used and i'm like there's no way that this thing has you know this thing has been abandoned for decades probably and what's it going to do? It's going to it's going to disintegrate. It's going to it's going to, you know, poison the soil. It's just going to be there. Yeah, man, we leave such a heavy footprint. Yeah. It was so <laughs> in 2020 I was watching this documentary about paleolithic peoples in in like England and Scotland and Ireland. It was a really good documentary. But it it just made me like laugh in the most bitter way because he the archaeologist went to this one site and he was like and this is uh, this is the landfill of the Paleolithic people and it was just shells shells from uh, the sea creatures the crustaceans and all that that they were eating and a few shards of broken pottery and I was like wow these are <laughs> what a landfill it's just things that came from the earth. Um, that can go back to the earth and and uh, feed the land again, and I it just made me want to sob because of course our landfills are full of things that can't go back mm-hmm. to the earth and that like you say, literally are poisoning poisoning the earth and um, land and ocean. So yeah, I just I found that super fascinating that a landfill at the time was just full of stuff that could go straight back where it came from. Right. <laughs> yeah. And here we are, but yeah, yeah, you know. But it was it was a, a fantastic experience. It was, it was an odd experience, you know, um, improvising to a recording. 
you know, like I told you, like it was like I had to listen twice and then it was it was fine. But it was uh, how did you start? Well, it was so interesting because the entire time that I was preparing to record, I had like the ghost of you at my side. I was I was like, I have to do this in a way that's going to be comprehensible to Justin, who is not here. You know, like I need to do this in a way that will make sense at a distance. So in a way, it almost felt like I was writing you a letter or something Mm. when I when I was recording. I was trying to, like, put good trail markers in place for you and and. on my end, it was a little less spontaneous than it would have been in recording simply because I, I wanted to hit certain time markers mm-hmm. for you and make sure that you could land with me and, and be with me in absence. Uh, Much which, appreciated. <laughs> yeah, oh, of course. Of course. Gotta help each other out, that's for sure. Um, but it was interesting because in a way it, it did, it still felt like I was duetting with you, but it was with a you who wasn't there and it was with a you who was in the future. Um, so it's a very fascinating sort of <laughs> dissociation of time yeah. and space there in our, in our duet. But, um, I, I think, uh, the results were very interesting and I do think that Bethany also sort of appreciated that ghostly quality of our interaction that there was this idea that you were interacting with me in another time in another place and same coming from me um so yeah i don't know it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to think about we're kind of sending these messages to each other from the past and the future and trying to meet somewhere in the middle there see i mean things just are supposed to work out because i i I think (laughs) the one reason why that piece I think works so well is the PVC pipe. Oh, the pipe is amazing. Yeah, and and not yeah. and not just for sound, but it's it, the extension of the vocal tract. Yes, that's. I mean, that's always. Uh, I mean, not, I say always, but this is the first time I've done a PVC pipe piece. <laughs> but yes, uh, well, there you go. Yeah, and for for any listeners who aren't aren't familiar with the piece, it's for two vocalists who are singing through these uh, big five-foot PVC pipes. And the pipes have the most fascinating effect because, of course, they act like a kind of strange directed amplifier, but they also bring out uh, the overtones in what's being sung. So there's this strange kind of like stop-motion feeling to the sound. It creates several different layers of sound. Mm -hmm. So you have the voices kind of moving um, but then also the pipe amplifying certain pitches and bringing them out. Um, it's a really fascinating sound, and I, I hope that uh, listeners will tune in when it's uh, performed at the festival. too we of course filmed both of us filmed outdoors because we wanted to you know uh, bring the world into our filming and uh, I sent Bethany just a photo of one of my setups and and the mouth of the pipe was really close to the river and I of course was five feet away and she said oh it looks like you're whispering to the river 
And I thought it was interesting to um, have the pipe as this an idea as a sort of intermediary between the human voice and the voice of the world, like trying the 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 pipe is sort of trying to gap uh, bridge that gap mm -hmm. uh, in between us and and the world. I um I sang a really beautiful piece with one of my consort by um, an Ecuadorian composer named Messias Maguashka who has indigenous roots in Ecuador. And this piece he wrote for us, um, it, uh, it involved a big metal bar that the singer hits with a, a metal rod. And the bar sort of shatters sound into all these partials and overtones and boomings and strange uh, sonic disruptions. <laughs> For me, that bar sort of served a similar purpose. It felt like the bar was trying to like shatter this <laughs> gap between, uh, you know, the human voice and the voice of the spirits of the world. Because his piece was, it was called uh, Eight Exercises to Hear the Inaudible. And it was about uh, three different kinds of communication. So. <laughs> communication uh, uh, human to spirit, communication spirit to human, and then communication spirit to spirit. So I just felt like the bar served this really interesting intermediary role of like mediating between these voices of, of our topside world and the more subconscious voices of the world or spirits out in the world. It's a beautiful piece. In closing, we cannot go without a new music icon impression, right? And so, you know, do you have a new music icon impression? Well, I don't know if I would call this necessarily an impression, but I do have a really beautiful memory that just for some reason has come to mean a lot to um, me and the other performers with it who were present for this. This was uh, one of the first times that my ensemble was working with the composer who I mentioned before, Julio Estrada. And uh, we were working on an incredible, very heavy piece by him uh, called Mictlan. And uh, it's from his opera based on the novel Pedro Paramo by Juan Rulfo. And uh, this piece was sort of about uh, the death of one of the main characters and um, his journey to the underworld, uh, which in uh, Aztec mythology, Mictlan is the underworld. So the piece is called Mictlan. And there's this one part of the piece that's so delicate and beautiful. And Julio was explaining to us that uh, that section was sort of voices of children and I'm not sure if they were supposed to be resounding from the underworld or coming from the topside world. I'm not sure. But he sang the passage for us. And, and we all were just like this. And we talk about it. And he went, no. It was something like that. And, and he just has such a beautiful voice and such a uh, rich voice and such a, an incredibly um, deep soul 
that for some reason that little moment just really stuck with that with us so um it's not like a yeah. like a like a like a wolf yeah Unless, sort of sort of like know. these little little howls little oh. howls of children yeah yeah so that was that's a really for some reason that moment was so precious and and special it's nice to nice to have a break from the James Dillon impressions. Uh, yes. I'm glad so, I could have blocked. Yeah, you 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 broke you broke the the the, the sequence, which Thank is goodness. good. Thank you. Um, I'm sure I'm sure he appreciates it well as if he ever listens to these. But <laughs> <laughs> poor James, it's like that I don't sound I like do that. To deserve this. <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of deep souls, that's a that's a person with a very deep soul. Yes. I remember he, um, I met him first in Minneapolis, my close friend and collaborator, Catherine Schulmeister, who's a double bassist. She and I went out to uh, work one of his pieces with him, A Roaring Flame. And then he came out to Chicago later to work with my ensemble. And I'll, I'll never forget, what if, after one of our rehearsals, he was like, you, you should sing every night in a bar. You should, you should do that. And I was like, yeah. I mean, it made so much sense. Again, it was kind of highlighting this understanding that it's all, it's all coming from the same place. It's all, it's all, it's all the same impulse. We're all telling stories, and that meant a lot to me. That I appreciated him saying that, and also it sounded really fun. It sounded really fun, right? Like that's not a bad idea. <laughs> it's let's, not a bad idea. It's a great yeah. idea. It's let's, a great idea. Let's let's switch the business plan. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, this, this is a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time and insight. And yeah, thank well, you. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to talk about these things and share these swirling thoughts that never seem to land. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I will be looking forward to watching what we did, you know. <laughs> I know, me too. Seeing, again, seeing, seeing how Mike... Uh, edited everything and smudged our palette up and you know what comes out of it and i deeply look forward to um when we can do something in person together and continue this oh that feeling yeah. is so mutual i look forward to that um thank you so much for having me Bye.